Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to Darwin or Design, where we each week tackle the most important questions that you can ask on planet Earth, namely, where did planet Earth come from? And all the wonderful swarming creatures, plants, animals, microbes uh, that uh, enjoy the habitat of planet Earth. Where did the universe come from? Is there a designer? Or is it all kind of a blind, chancy process? Is it just the laws of nature plus nothing or plus time plus nothing? that brought about the amazing complexity of humanity and life. Well, I, of course, have the privilege each week of tackling those questions along with my co-pilot, Bill Carl, the technical side of of the whole matter. It comes down to you, Bill. Thanks for all your help. Not a problem. Glad to be here today. Well, it's great to have all of you out there listening in on AM 570 and 910. And we have at the other end of the line, we're going to introduce him in just about a minute or so, we have Dr. Doug Axe, and he is a Ph.D. level biochemist. I may not be getting that description right, but he works on protein research. He investigates the folds on the sides of proteins and sees whether... Uh, those random mutations have the ability to tinker with and remodel those folds. It's an amazing uh, area of research on the intelligent design hypothesis, kind of really substantiating what are the capacities of microevolution, what can evolution do, and what really can't happen, as far as we can tell, from lab experiments. And again, we are so thankful for our sponsors each week, the C.S. Lewis Society. So many of you out there who listen to this program on a regular basis have heard about the C.S. Lewis Society. And basically, we're trying to engage the skeptic, whether he be found or she be found on the high school campus, university campus, anywhere in the world, really. And so I was just talking with a lady out west uh, today in the Texas area whose son went to the University of Oklahoma and basically went from being a follower of the Christian faith to being an uh, outspoken agnostic. And it touched my heart as she was raising the issues that he was raising, and she asked me about a YouTube video he had seen, which I had not seen. So I said, well, let me just engage you know, with you and hopefully eventually with him and, and maybe share some uh, video resources, some DVDs that are really you know, going to be powerful, I think, to really help this young man to think through some of these issues. And that's what we're all about, touching human lives with the truth in regard to especially the scientific arena of discussion about origins. Well, we want to thank, of course, not only C.S. Lewis Society, but that other very practical Christian entity, the, the very outstanding people at St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute, led by none other than Dr. James P. Gills. Dr. Gills has been laboring, as it were, as one of the world's leading researchers and eye doctors. I guess the term is ophthalmologist, but he has pioneered not only cataract surgery, but many other techniques related to the lens implant side of cataract surgery. And it's just a relatively painless operation. And of course, St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute deals with a whole range of eye situations and needs, including improvement of vision. 
So give them a call at their main number, 727-938-2020. That's pretty easy to remember from 2020 Vision. And 727-938-2020. St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute, Excellence with Love. Well, speaking about excellence, I have been talking for years about an excellent researcher who we are so fortunate to have as it were steering a ship of research through the exciting waters of biological controversy. And his uh, ship, if I can use that analogy, is a very high-powered think tank. I guess it's a biological research institute. It's called the Biologic Institute, and it's headed up, founded by and headed up by Dr. Doug Axe. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Axe. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I've been, uh, you know, in chats with you, visits on the phone uh, off and on for several years since you've been located out there in Seattle. And uh, how long has the Institute uh, actually been uh, functioning, and how long has it been known to the public, I guess? Uh, <clears throat> officially incorporated uh, toward the end of 2005, so we're mm-hmm. coming on to four years. But for uh, the first couple of years of that time, it was uh, pretty much under the radar. Mm-hmm. We only went live with our website a little over a year ago. Okay. Uh, and that probably would have been the point where, where many people um, first heard of us. And I think there was actually an article about you in one of the major magazines. I don't know if you want me to mention that, but... Uh, that's true. So that, that was New Scientist, if, it, if that's one you're talking about. Right. And that came out um, early on. We were, um, I think we had just been incorporated, and that article came out at the end of 2005. Wow. Well, if you're just joining us, we have on the phone with us in Red, is it Redmond, Washington? Yes. Okay. Home of Microsoft. Uh, home of Microsoft. Very good. Okay. Two high-powered uh, entities there, hovering and work, doing work in in uh, Washington State. Uh, the Biologic Institute uh, head and founder is Doug Axe, and he has done research in and has published it in peer-reviewed journals on something which I correct me if I'm wrong, Doctor Axe is called site-directed mutagenesis. Is that is that um, the correct term? Is that a, that's correct. That, that's the term that distinguishes kind of the modern way of altering DNA from the old classical method. So okay. um, until several decades ago, um, the way that people would modify DNA was by subjecting some poor critter to x-rays or something like that. Hmm. Site-directed mutagenesis refers to the various techniques that use small man-made pieces of DNA to engineer specific changes to genes. So it's a much more precise way to modify DNA. Well, I did not know that. I am uh, aware of another term, which I'll bring up later in the in the broadcast, cassette mutagenesis, and I'll ask you to kind of clarify the difference between the two. But let me just go back into the time when I got to know you, which was in a private kind of email community discussion on the Internet, uh, which uh, I participated in for about three years. I discussed this in Chapter 7 of my book, Doubts About Darwin, the initial you know work I did on the intelligent design movement. And I remember, I don't know if you remember me, but I remember you making various comments, very sharp comments and, and insightful comments uh, from your post there as a researcher in England at the time uh, in that particular discussion uh, led by Phil Johnson, of course. Tell us about your your time in England, and you know, why don't you just start with your training in, in science, and then tell us about your work in England. Okay, my uh, PhD work was at Caltech in the States, and shortly after completing that, uh, my wife and I decided to uh, move out to England to do a, for me to do a postdoc there. Mm-hmm. It was going to be a three-year stint, um, 
returning back to the U.S. That was our plan. We ended up getting funding to continue that, and we ended up kind of uh, settling longer term in the U.K. for about 14 years. And that was, primarily in, that was primarily in Cambridge? That was entirely in Cambridge, but at various uh, research uh, institutes within Cambridge. Okay. And what kinds of work, uh, biological research, did you carry on? I know it's, you may have done dozens of experiments and you know all kinds of different work, kinds of uh, research work, but in a nutshell. Okay, for me, the move to England was really um, where I transitioned from a biochemical engineering background to a molecular biology background. So my studies at Caltech were in the Department of Chemical Engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, but also focusing on basic biology problems. I became there very interested in the uh, question of proteins and what the constraints on their sequences are uh, implied by the functions that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to move into that, into that field, but that required kind of a shift of fields for me from um, an engineering field to a molecular biology field. So that's what I took up uh, at Cambridge, first at the um, Department of Chemistry at the University of Cambridge, and then at the Medical Research Council Center, and then finally at the Abraham Institute in Cambridge. Now, Cambridge University, of course, one of the two most elite in not only that country, but in the world, along with Oxford, is you know known as a, a community of a scientific breakthroughs. I think it was in Cambridge where at the, um, I forget the name of the institute, where Watson and Crick did their work on DNA. That institute was called the Eagle Pub. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, there is a famous pub there called the Eagle, where apparently they scrawled out the first double helix on a napkin. Well, you know what? I've dined. I've had fish and chips in that pub with my wife. Well, (laughs) there you go. We'll probably do that here in about a couple of weeks when we're in England leading a theology uh, study tour. But I think that uh, the the work there in in Cambridge is quite significant. Of course, Charles Darwin, a graduate of, um, I forget which college, but he was a graduate of Cambridge University. The whole place is saturated in history, both scientific and, quite frankly, theological as well. Uh, when you were then in Cambridge, was that when the door opened for you to come back into the United States and do research here? It did eventually, but uh, that took some time. And the, the situation for doing research was so great there that I was, in some respects, not in a hurry to get back to the States. Sure. But uh, my, my focus there, my interest was on intelligent design and most specifically on testing the power or lack thereof, of molecular Darwinism. So that's really what what I was interested in exploring. And as my work became more and more, um, as it became more and more evident that my work was pushing to a design conclusion, Mm -hmm. uh, it became more and more uh, important for me to think about how to take a career forward with that that interest, which is a difficult thing to do. And that's really what, what got us back to the States to start a new entity that uh, just focuses on design-based or design-informed research. Very good. Well, we've been talking with Doug Axe. We're going to be continuing this in the next segment. And Doug Axe is out at the Biologic Institute. He is the head of research. He basically runs the institute there, which does actual lab research with, um, you know, uh, hoods on the uh, tops of these chemical stations and all kinds of very, very sophisticated techniques for manipulating or, or taking molecular tweezers and doing work at the molecular level on DNA and 
and proteins. We're going to be right back on Darwin or Design for another part of our conversation with Doug Axe. I'm Tom Woodward, your host. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910-WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Thanks so much for joining us on Darwin or Design. We're ex- uh, excited about an opportunity today to speak with Doug Axe, who is with the Biologic Institute, which you might say is one of the main research arms of the Discovery Institute based in Seattle, Washington. So Doug Axe is not too, too far away from Seattle. He's out in uh, Redmond. Uh, where in the state is Redmond, Washington? I it have... is just on the other side of Lake Washington from Seattle. So just a 15-minute or so drive west, or sorry, east of Seattle. I had no idea you were that close. I was in Seattle. I should have looked you up. <laughs> recently. No, very close. Okay. Well, Doug Axe has uh, done, of course, his initial PhD work at Caltech, University of uh, California Technology. Well, why don't you tell us the full... Institute of Technology. Thank you very much. California Institute of Technology. It's such an advanced school, I can't even pronounce its uh, full name correctly. But uh, my brother, you'll laugh at this, Doug, my brother, Dick Woodward, who lives in uh, San Diego now and is a vice president of a a very high-tech company, applied to Princeton University, where I went. He applied to Caltech. He was accepted at Princeton and put on the waiting list at Caltech. Now, now there you go. I mean, you talk about hard to get into. We're talking meta-Harvard, you know, beyond Harvard. And so anybody who goes to Caltech, I'm a little bit, like, uh, you know, impressed, to put it mildly. Uh, my brother actually got 800 on his math, so I don't know what the flaw was. <laughs> so, you know, okay, what else do I need to do? Uh, so, but it, it's great to have you on. And of course, you did your um, not only your PhD work, you did postdoc at Cambridge University in their in the chemistry uh, area there, and of course worked both in the MRC laboratory and the Babraham Institute in doing research on this amazing thing called the protein. Now, the protein. Um, Doug, as we're gonna, I'm going to interview you, but let me just kind of uh, review for the audience. Uh, uh, Dr. Axe is an expert on doing very precise uh, testing or manipulation of the folds on the side of a folded protein. But a protein is a chain uh, of amino acids, a very precise arrangement of amino acids that stretches, except for a few of them called the histones. It usually stretches anywhere from 100 of these chemical letters, these amino acids, to several thousand. Do I have it right? On, on the on the uh, what a protein is, I yes. Mean, so yeah. one thousand would be a large protein. It's typically in the range of a hundred or so to about a thousand. Some are a couple thousand. Okay. So a protein, let's say an average protein might be three hundred and fifty amino acids, which yeah, all right. Which after it comes out of the um, let's say synthesis by the ribosome machine, carried out in the ribosome machine, it is detached from the ribosome. Uh, like it's presented in that beautiful movie, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, which many of our readers, uh, excuse me, listeners have have seen. Uh, and, and it begins to fold into a precise three-dimensional shape, which is predetermined by the order of those chemical letters, those amino acids. Am I all, still okay? That's correct. Okay. Now, tell us what you do after you work with that protein. Uh, once, you know, once the protein is folded, do you zoom in on a wrinkle or a, a, a kind of an active site on the side of it? And what do you do with that? 
Well, first of all, although my interest is proteins and that, and proteins are the subject of what I'm studying, um, I'm usually actually manipulating the DNA rather than the protein. Okay. So what I do is take the gene that has the instructions for making that long protein chain and do specific modifications of the gene I see. in order to tinker with the protein and then put those modified genes into a cell, a bacterial cell, to let that cell actually manufacture the protein. And the beauty of doing that is you can actually let the cell tell you, if you set things up correctly, you can let the cell tell you whether that protein is performing its function or not. Wow. Uh, we're talking today to Doug Axe of the Biologic Institute, one of the leading researchers doing work on the intelligent design hypothesis. Doug, when you take that DNA and you move in and you zero in on the snippet you want, uh, excuse me for the dumb question, but how do you manage to work at that level and pick out one part of that gene? And like, Because it's so tiny, how do you do that? That's a very good question. <laughs> and a lot of people who ask it assume that we're using some kind of high-powered microscope and little tiny tweezers. And <laughs> actually, we don't use... Um, the, the equipment that we use is not all that sophisticated, with the exception of the molecular equipment um, that actually modifies things at the molecular scale. And that, interestingly enough, comes straight from biology. So one of the main workhorses for doing molecular biology is enzymes that are natural proteins that are actually purified from natural systems. Mm. So, um, for example, you mentioned the ribosome, which is a very complex, large protein RNA complex. Those are, you can purify ribosomes from bacterial cells and actually perform protein synthesis with purified ribosomes in a test tube. You can also purify much smaller enzymes like restriction endonucleases, they're called, which are very precise scissors that clip DNA, not anywhere, but at specific recognition sites. So there's a mm. whole battery of tools like this that are actually taken from living cells and purified. So the living cells then supply those equivalent of a tweezer, but instead of being a tweezer, it's an actual little teeny microprotein, an enzyme, literally. Exactly. And, okay. That's amazing. I've never, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm graduating from kindergarten to first grade, Bill. Uh, so maybe you, you feel like me. <laughs> well, I, I'm thinking I'm just getting out of preschool. That's, okay, uh, that's right. strong stuff. Okay, well, maybe we're in third grade right now. Go. Because uh, <laughs> well, by, by the end of this program, hopefully we'll be in junior high. There you go. Uh, I, I want to just, uh, we're talking today with Doug Axe, uh, one of my uh, most esteemed colleagues in the intelligent design movement. He is one of the, if not the leading researcher doing lab experiments on the hypothesis that only intelligence is is able to carry out the modifications to move from one kind of gene uh, or to, let's say, you know, uh, to demonstrate that one kind of gene cannot, on mutation basis, be transformed into a radically new kind of gene that codes for a, a new kind of protein. Um, what is the kind of research results that you've published in some of the peer-reviewed journals uh, so far. Can you give us an example of one of those maybe more significant bits of results that you have published? And again, let me emphasize this is in peer-reviewed research journals. Sure. There's a <clears throat> paper that appeared in the summer of 2004 in a journal called Journal of Molecular Biology. And the um, 
point of the work that was reported in that paper was to determine how prevalent um, properly folded and functional protein chains are uh, within the whole space of possibilities. So we've spoken about these chains of amino acids. There are 20 different um, biological amino acids that, that get arranged in this, these chain-like structures that fold up. It turns out they only fold if they have certain properties to the arrangement, to the sequential arrangement. And one of the very important questions is, how many of the possible sequences, how many of the possible arrangements of these 20 amino acids can be expected to fold in a way that biological proteins fold? And that's something that I attempted to measure experimentally, and it was reported in this 2004 paper um, with the figure being, um, this is the, the, the fraction of uh, all possible sequences that could be expected to perform a particular function by folding up and doing that function, mm -hmm. one in 10 to the 77th power. So that's a very, very, very tiny fraction. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's uh, 10 with 77 zeros after it. Yeah, so one be... with 77 zeros after it. Okay. And that is a figure which is, you know, I mean, to put it mildly astronomical, I mean, it is so minuscule in having... Uh, let's say, in a chance hypothesis, that by chance, um, juggling and modifying and recombining different segments of, D of DNA, which, of course, code for those proteins, would find or would stumble upon that correct sequence. How does an evolutionary biologist, when he reads your article, how does he come back and try to salvage the plausibility of mutation and selection, accomplishing that search? There's a lot of head-scratching going on. I think a lot of people um, are recognizing that there's something that does not fit here, that if functional proteins are that rare, it really is effectively impossible to find them through a Darwinian search. And there are a number of points that people might try to raise in order to get around that. And one, uh, one that I've heard is that... Um, it, it may not be necessary for cells to find a particular function. So the 1 in 10 to the 77th power was the frequency of sequences, an estimate of the frequency that performs some specified function. And I've heard some people say, well, perhaps cells don't need to hit a particular function. Perhaps there's a wide range of functions that they could acquire, and all of them would, would potentially provide benefit. But there again, you don't right. need to do a very complex calculation to convince yourself that there can't be anything like that number mm -hmm. of um, potentially beneficial functions. If well, anyone who's familiar with putting something together, designing something, and trying to make it work or trying to improve it knows that there are a handful of things that could potentially improve a complex system. Well, it sounds like the uh, attempt to answer the, um, you know, the, the huge hurdle that you've stumbled upon in your research is a bit of hand-waving. And I, I want to, um, we're talking today to Doug Axe out at the Biologic Institute, uh, a very, very important researcher on the intelligent design hypothesis. 
When we come back after the break, I want to ask Dr. Doug Axe a number of questions I've reserved that deal with questions uh, about the work of Dr. Michael Behe and Dr. Ralph Silke and some basic questions about the plausibility of the design hypothesis in competition with a Darwinian answer of where we came from. So come right back and uh, just hear those answers from Dr. Doug Axe in just a minute. We'll be taking a break now on Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, where we're really, as it were, bringing out the case for design from one of the leading researchers, Doug Axe who is situated out in Redmond, Washington, not too far from Seattle. And he is the head researcher and founder, and I would say the the director of operations at the Biologic Institute, a very, very important biological research institute there in the state of Washington, carrying out experiments on the design hypothesis. We want to thank our two sponsors, of course, the C.S. Lewis Society, an organization that it was my privilege to launch on the Trinity College campus up in Newport Ritchie back in the year 1988 when I had just published my first article. Bill, can you guess what the first article I ever did was on this topic? Doubts about Darwin, Darwin, which uh, without me even hinting, they chose for my first book, you know, which Mm -hmm. was my dissertation over here at the University of South Florida. So the C.S. Lewis Society is literally trying to, as it were, present the case for a designed universe and then raise the very important question that science is mute on, namely, who is the designer? Has the designer made himself known to the universe, to the specifically this corner of the universe, to the earth where intelligent beings called people are asking that question all the time. So we get into the question of historic evidence, philosophical arguments for and against the uh, the Judeo-Christian and specifically the, uh, the notion that the designer has manifested himself in the uh, Christian faith. But uh, the design hypothesis, of course, does not get into that issue. We'll talk to, with Dr. Doug Axe about that in a moment. Also, I want to thank the uh, wonderful people at the St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute who are daily, every day except, I guess, the Sunday, and, and uh, I think they have Saturday morning hours, uh, but every day of the week they are tackling the most challenging and exciting medical situations that you can have in eye care, and they are bringing top quality, fresh research and medical uh, breakthroughs right there into the operating room to help people with macular degeneration, with glaucoma, uh, with all kinds of uh, even dry eye. And, of course, their their most uh, famous area that they work on is cataract surgery. But uh, not to be forgotten, they can actually take the human eye and tweak it through their laser surgery and make it 20-20. I'm living proof that that can be done because I actually, just before they brought in laser surgery, they had something called RK surgery. And for the last 17 years, I've had 20-20 vision, thanks to the wonderful people at St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute, led by Dr. James P. Gills and his son, Pitt Gills, and a whole wonderful staff of surgeons and medical technologists, many of, you, uh, many of whom I've had the chance to meet 
uh, personally and schmooze, <laughs> hang out and talk uh, with. And uh, Bill, uh, it's great to have a, a world-renowned Eye Institute supporting this program, isn't it? Yeah, it does. And Dr. Gills and uh, his son have done a tremendous work in our community, obviously not mm-hmm. just with uh, St. Luke's, but uh, really benefiting so many ministries and so mm-hmm. many causes that really forward uh, mm-hmm. a mission much like that of Darwin and Design, exactly. or Dar- Darwin or Design, rather. Exactly. And of course, Dr. Gills has actually been on this program a number of times, and he would be thrilled to know that we, to this week, uh, perhaps he's listening as, we, as we're airing this program interviewing Dr. Doug Axe. Doug Axe is a, an old friend of mine, sort of. We got to know through the internet uh, back in the mid-90s, and he is now uh, ensconced no longer in Cambridge University in Cambridge, England, uh, or the Institutes of Research where he was once uh, doing his work. He's now based in uh, an area, of, I guess you would call it a suburb of Seattle, Washington, where he heads the Biologic Institute. Well, Doug Axe, let me ask you a quick question or two or three. Let me ask you, first of all, when someone comes up and says, oh, Michael Behe, the author of Darwin's Black Box, and more recently, The Edge of Evolution, uh, his work is nothing. Um, You know, his idea of irreducible complexity, you know, nanomachines in the cell, that doesn't point to a designer because those individual parts in the machine have function. Therefore, Behe's argument fails. How would you answer somebody like that? First of all, um, I would point out that, um, to be fair to Mike, he was um, using a very simple contraption like a mousetrap to illustrate things that are much more complicated. And the reason for that is it's just easier to convey complex arguments with simple illustrations. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the first answer would be to go to his illustration, which is a mousetrap, and pull apart the parts and ask someone what function these individual parts have apart from being assembled into a mousetrap. And I mm-hmm. think apart from very trivial functions like paperweights, it would be hard to come up with um, something that those parts pre- perform on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the more sophisticated things that Mike is actually talking about inside the cell, the same thing holds. Most, um, most of these molecular machines, they're, they're built of proteins for the most part, and most of them have many protein chains that are folded up into complex structures, and the separate chains then adhere to each other to form um, even larger structures. And with very, very few exceptions, if you pull these things apart and look at one protein on its own, um, this this is from the molecular machines anyway, um, they don't do anything unless they're part of their larger structure. So that basic argument that's illustrated by the mousetrap does hold in biology. The way that people, uh, that biologists attempt to get around that is by squinting their eyes a little bit and saying, well, this particular protein on its own may not perform any function if you take it out of its context of the molecular machine, but there are proteins that look like it that do perform other functions. And in some cases, that's correct. In some cases, even that is not correct. But an interesting question is how, how easy or hard is it to take um, a protein that looks like a protein that performs another function and get it to actually perform that new function? And that's one of the things that we've been examining in the lab. It turns out not to be very easy. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you take protein X 
and you want to modify it into a sister protein Y that has a slightly different shape fold, maybe, maybe the same basic structure, looking at it from a distance, but it has a different shape fold on the side. It's just not a matter of taking one little digit of DNA and going bloop. You've got to do more than that? Correct. And um, in biological terms, fold would refer to the overall shape, the o- overall path that the whole chain takes. Mm-hmm. So... Protein X and Y might have the same fold. They might be classified together in a classification of of protein structures. But if you look at the minutia of structure, the little side chains within an active site that actually hold on to Mm -hmm. um, a chemical uh, molecule and perform a catalytic function on it, um, there you'll see differences from one fold to the next. They may, they may, I mean, from one protein to the next, one enzyme to the next. Mm-hmm. They may have the same overall structure, but in, at molecular detail, they differ, and those uh, differences of detail have a huge effect on the functions they perform. So mm-hmm. an important question is how hard or easy is it to take one of these examples and make it perform the function of another? And that turns out to be uh, very difficult. We found in an example that we've examined that it takes eight or more specific changes to the gene in order to accomplish a, in order to bring online a completely new function that we know can be performed from a similar fold. And, of course, eight specific genes doesn't sound like a lot, but... Uh, eight specific Mutations. Mutations, right, right. And and the intermediate forms, like, you know, as you go from, let's say, one mutation, the second, and the third, working your way up to the goal of eight, those intermediate forms, I mean, are they coherent? I mean, they're, they're, they're handy-dandy, or...? No, those would be functionless, and that's the whole problem. You lose, if we're going from function A to function B, mm-hmm. you lose function A very quickly, maybe by the second mutation, you've gotcha. lost function A, and okay. then you have to wait for six more or so before function B comes online. Now, that's, to me, a staggering um, uh, barrier. I mean, it's it's like, in other words, it's not like jumping from one island to another in an archipelago. If you want to make a little running jump, I guess Bob Beeman set the world record for broad jump back in, I think, the 64 Olympics I remember in Mexico, 90, 29 feet, I started to say 92 feet, uh, 29 feet and some inches. Um, so it's not like broad jumping from one island to another because of the mutational distance. It's like light years, right? Yeah, this would be more like jumping from California to Hawaii. It's just mm-hmm. not going to happen. Just to refresh, uh, our guest today is Doug Axe. Uh, he is the director of Bi- the Biologic Institute, which you can actually find online at uh, biologicinstitute.org. And he is a leading researcher uh, doing work on the design hypothesis from an experimental point of view. Uh, Doug, you participated in a fairly well-known documentary film, did you not, uh, not too long ago? I did. Okay, tell us about that. Um, expelled, no intelligence allowed with with Ben Stein. I have a very small part in it, um, but it was fun to be a part of that. Um, I'm only there introducing uh, the viewer to the complexity inside the cell, but that's what I work on, so that was a fun part to have. Right. Well, let me refresh the viewers. Uh, It's at the part of the film, I think it's maybe about a third of the way into it, where Doug is standing in front of a screen where green DNA, three-dimensional DNA model, is twirling around, I think, in a maybe in a horizontal point of 
uh, you know, orientation. And then right after you, they have you standing there explaining about DNA, don't, don't they actually zoom inside of a cell and show the yeah. interior of it? Okay. Yeah, and then you get these excellent graphics mm-hmm. um, taking you inside the cell, looking at uh, some of the marvelously complicated things that are happening that most people aren't aware of inside every cell of their body. Fantastic. Well, we're just about at the end of this segment. I want to come uh, back right right to after a quick break uh, with Doug Axe and pose to him my biggest question of all pertaining to the struggle between Darwinian evolution this materialistic uh, theory of origins and intelligent design. We'll be back with more in just a moment on Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910-WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, where we're tackling each week the big questions of origins, and especially we really probe a lot into the area of DNA and its um, copy molecule, the molecule that's a copy of DNA, RNA, and proteins. And today we're talking with one of my favorite experts on not only design hypothesis research, but also the DNA, RNA, and protein family. Those uh, three molecules are usually related Uh, in what's called the central dogma of molecular biology, something like this. DNA makes RNA, which makes proteins. Well, that dogma is uh, still the dogma, but it's having um, some, I guess, some variations and tweakings made to it. But we are excited that Doug Axe, a Ph.D. graduate from Caltech in chemical engineering, but also a top researcher in the Cambridge University, uh, not only the university, but several research institutes there for a number of years, has finally, uh, we've been able to work out a time where he could be interviewed on our program. Thanks again, Doug Axe, for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Doug, you've been talked about in so many um, venues recently as, um, you know, one who is pointing out that the molecular issues are really crucial for deciding the plausibility of neo-Darwinism versus the plausibility of the design hypothesis. Uh, let me just ask you some, this is going to be kind of quick questions with quick answers. Sure. What do you, you considered um, in a recent uh, item that I read, I think it's called something about bold biology for the future. I think you wrote it sure. in fe- February. A perspective piece, I think, on online. Right. And I was struck with the words that you used about halfway through there about neo-Darwinism uh, teetering on the brink of collapse. And I thought, you know, no one knows the interior of this theory, in my view, on, you know, within our movement. Uh, from, a, from an experimental point of view, no one knows it, or very few people know it as well as you. What, in a nutshell, like in a minute or so, what are we learning about the, the, the core of Darwin's theory that leads you to say, it's man, it's really, it's not doing too well, it's on its last legs? Okay, that's an excellent question. I would say, in a nutshell, it is this problem of information. We've now entered the age where information is very tightly associated with biology, particularly with molecular biology. And the question of origins has now become wedded to this question of information, and particularly the origin of information. How do you get the sequence information that allows these complex things that are built every day, every moment in cells out of proteins 
How, do, how does the information arise, first arise, for these things to appear? And there really is no adequate answer for that. And this is now being acknowledged, at least in some context, in the context of the origin of life, for example. This is now being acknowledged by some very influential people who are not at all design theorists. They are uh, materialists and naturalists, but they've acknowledged that there is a huge problem here. Very good. I appreciate your backing up, as it were, from your point of view, the uh, d- the description that you used in that article about the um, you know the unraveling state of neo-Darwinism. Do you feel that the scientific community in the next ten years will begin to quietly abandon their faith in the mutation selection hypothesis as the generator of biological information and biological novelty, and just start looking for another answer? in the materialism fold, kind of like the people uh, over in Altenburg, Austria, this summer? I think we're seeing signs that that is happening. People are being cautious, though. I mean, it's one thing to be thinking about something quietly and another thing to be publishing on it. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are outside of the design camp and are wanting to rethink uh, origins from a materialistic perspective have a very difficult uh, job in front of them. Mm. Um, but I, I do think that particularly among younger scientists, they are more willing to question the received wisdom. And um, I think we're going to be seeing in, over the next 10 years an increasing number of young um, academics who no longer accept the Darwinian proposition. Okay, at least the core of the mutation selection mechanism. Right. right. So it does work for explaining relatively... Um, insignificant things like, you know, uh, they may not be insignificant from a clinical standpoint or from a health standpoint, but in terms of origins, they're not very significant. Things like every year we have a new round of flu and uh, our immune systems have to relearn how to cope with with the new batch of virus. Wow. The work that we're uh, seeing coming out of your institute includes that by Rick Sternberg. Uh, and um, we're, by the way, we're talking with Doug Axe out at the Biologic Institute today. He is one of the most highly esteemed leaders in biologic research, biological research, not only on uh, DNA and proteins, but just in the big questions of the origin of information. You have now on board with you there at the Biologic Institute the one who is really the star, so to speak. Uh, the expelled movie star, the uh, scientist formerly at the Smithsonian, Rick Sternberg. Uh, what does he do there at your research uh, institute? He's involved in a number of studies. He's actually writing a book right now. Um, you might want to interview him. Uh, I, pl- I plan to. He's <laughs> guy and extremely bright. He's mm-hmm. got twice as many PhDs as I do, last time I counted. <laughs> and uh, he does both theoretical biology, so thinking through from a purely theoretical standpoint um, what genomes do and whether they are adequate to explain um, the blueprints of living things. Mm -hmm. Um, He also does experimental work observing things like uh, shrimp. He's, uh, every time we're together, on a beach, he's picking up specimens and telling me new things about crabs and shrimp and things like that. 
<laughs> well, I'm seeing Bill Carl make the motions of munching a shrimp. I think that's what we're best. That's what we're best at, right, Bill? Complex uh, observation there. That's right, <laughs> all the way exactly. down our throat. Uh, Rick Sternberg is uh, one who is would be described as sympathetic to the design hypothesis, although not necessarily, you know, you know, uh, you know, on the scale of one to ten, he wouldn't necessarily be a number ten uh, as having. Um, bought officially the design hypothesis. Is that correct? Um, I would say he's, he, he is very um, intellectually honest. And when he sees problems with the current paradigm, and he does, he's just very honest about that, and he's mm-hmm. very willing to follow the evidence where it goes. And that includes drawing the design uh, inference that, that biology has been designed. I would, I would say, I'll let I'll let him uh, characterize his own position, but from my conversations with him, he's he's very uh, certainly very willing to accept design, and he is actively considering that idea. Okay. Well, last question, uh, last but not least, is uh, if you were a young person wanting to research this area more, what resources? What let's say DVDs, books, magazine articles, blogs. What would you say are like the top, you know, two or three or four mandatory sources of information to help get a grasp on this area? Okay, some of the um, the good books that would give you an idea of what's going on would be um, Darwin's Black Box by Mike Behe, followed by The Edge of Evolution, mm-hmm. also by Mike Behe. Um, and another one that is yet to come out, but will be coming out very shortly, I can give a little plug for it, is Stephen Meyer's book called Signature in the Cell. Hmm. Um, a difficult read, uh, perhaps for a, for a very young person, but someone in college who's interested in these um, issues would find this to be a very, very uh, good way to explore what's going on right now in biology. Hmm. And I noticed that uh, I just received my galley proof, and it's a little bit on the long side. I think it's about 430 pages. But I read the first chapter in about 20 minutes. I could, I could hardly put it down. I, I think, yeah, I think it's a compelling read. Actually. Oh, it's exciting. He, he actually relates his own story of encountering all the evidence. But speaking of evidence, that's what we've been talking about today with Dr. Doug Axe uh, joining us on the phone from his laboratory out in Redmond, Washington, just uh, across the water from Seattle at the Biologic Institute, one of the world's leading researchers at the experimental level on the design hypothesis. Thank you so much for joining us, Doug. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, we'll be talking to you again soon. Well, Bill, that was uh, a fantastic conversation with a really articulate experimenter. I mean, I actually could understand him. (laughs) I don't think you got the shrimp thing, though. <laughs> well, we'll have to invite him to come to Tampa Bay and dine on our, to our brand bills, of shrimp. Yeah. yeah, of course we need Rick Sternberg since Rick's the yeah. Rick's the the shrimp expert on that point. But you know, one of the things that we try to tackle each week because you see, science cannot raise the question who is the designer. I mean, it can raise the question, but it can't effectively answer the question. Right. And so one of the things, uh, since we are dealing with that question just as much as the question whether there is a designer, that's an important question, but once you conclude that there is a designer, then you have to ask, has he clearly, strongly, boldly, decisively revealed himself? And I think that's where the the record, the Judeo-Christian record 
of a master architect, a designer, revealing himself through human lives, human cultures. Literally the story that is brought out to us from the Old Testament as God hammered on this very special chosen people, the, the Jewish people, and then as they struggled with um, obeying and, and, and trusting and following that same creator, um, they really um, had to, as it were, reckon with the, you know, the, the, the judgment for having gone astray, but they also they had to really revel in the good news that was promised to that people. And so uh, once the, the, uh, the issue of the designer has been settled in the affirmative, that is, once someone comes to the conclusion, wow, we are designed, you have to ask, what is the purpose? I mean, what are we designed for? And I love that uh, statement that comes from the Westminster Confession put by the great Presbyterian scholars in England in the early 1600s. You know, man has a purpose. Okay? The chief end of man is to glorify the Creator and to enjoy Him forever. Wow. I mean, that says it all. And, of course, to, uh, to kind of camp on that idea of not only knowing the Creator but enjoying Him, I love the, the writings of C.S. Lewis that picture heaven as the, the novel. In other words, we get to begin in heaven the novel, chapter 1, chapter 2, all that begins in heaven. And the, this life is just the frontispiece. It's just the opening section of the book, the, the title page, the table of contents, if you will. And so uh, as the, um, the story unfolds in heaven, it goes on forever, and every chapter gets better than the one before. That is what we were made for. And, of course, uh, we are always delighted to bring uh, information to anybody who has a question. Maybe you have a question about this whole thing. Maybe you've been thinking, hmm, maybe we were made for a purpose after all. It sure looks like we're designed. You know, Design is something you recognize almost at the intuitive level as well as figuring it out at the empirical level like uh, Dr. Doug Axe has done. So if you're interested in pursuing the question of what were we made for and what is the way back to the Creator that Christ made through uh, his his death on the cross and uh, his rising from the dead, seen by eyewitnesses, we would be delighted. I would be delighted to just receive a personal call uh, through my um, office at uh, Trinity College. And that number is uh, 727-376-6911. The Trinity College number again, 727 727- Three seven six six nine one one. But we'll look forward to having you back here next week when uh, one of my dear friends, a uh, guy uh, working in the ID movement for 20 years, Kevin Worth, will be covering for me while I'm traveling in Europe. Appreciate your prayer. And so we'll be back with you shortly on Darwin or Design. <laughs> 